I think we are increasingly going to be moving towards global competition for high paying and for highly technical jobs. I, I think that technology has been driving that change for a number of years, and it's just much more visible now because of all of these accelerating movements. I mean, over the last 10 years, if you had a friend that started a new startup and was trying to bootstrap it, where was he getting the technical and back-end work done? It was Ukraine, it was Bangladesh, it was India. And those developer jobs have been international and that competition existed internationally in the freelance market. It's just that now the freelance market is going to be the mainstream market in a lot of ways as we go forward. So so yes, I, I do think you're going to see an increasingly globalized world as it relates to that kind of talent as more and more of these jobs go digital and go into the digital ecosystem. Is it a good thing or not is a, is a much more tricky question for me. I very much believe in the American dream. Uh, you know, my, my family came here um, to, to pursue that, and I very much believe in it, and I believe we live in the best country in the world. That being said, I'm also a big believer that historically and throughout history, talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And that is something that really has troubled me throughout my life and something that I'm determined to, even in the tiniest way, help fix throughout the course of my life. And, and this is an event that begins to see opportunity distributed more evenly. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond. This episode is sponsored by Bitstamp and Crypto.com. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by Coindesk. And now, here's your host, NLW. What's going on, guys? It is Thursday, July 23rd, and today my main conversation is with Sahil Bloom. Sahil Bloom, you might recognize from a number of excellent threads that have been exploding all over FinTwit, explaining important concepts in really accessible ways. One of the things that I believe incredibly strongly is that today's financial media in general has the role of excluding rather than including people. It is an insider baseball type of niche performance art that really only serves to reinforce the fact that people who know all the acronyms and initials are in that in-group and everyone else is in the out-group. And when it comes to something as important as the economy, which impacts every single one of us, I think that our financial media has to be more invitational. It has to start from the premise that no matter who you are and what you do, you have a stake in and can understand important economic concepts. Sahil shares that perspective and has been doing some amazing work in really simplifying things using the format of the Twitter thread. So that should be a really fun conversation. Up first, however, let's look at the brief. First up on the brief today, it is Thursday, which means we get the new jobless claims data. And today was not good. We saw the first rise in initial jobless claims in four months, up 109,000 seasonally adjusted claims to about 1.4 million claims total. That was up from the expected 1.3 million. Now, if there was good news, it came in the continuing claims data, which was down 1.1 million to a total of 16.2 million continuing claims. Other indicators, unfortunately, also suggest that there is a lack of demand or an easing demand for labor. We're seeing job openings in July being down from June, and Google searches for file for unemployment are growing again. What's more, the growth in worker hours in small businesses is on the downturn. 
why this is significant. Well, I've said this before. Basically, I see these jobless claims as something of a counterpoint to the day in day out statistics of the stock market as one of the major economic indicators we need to be looking at. And a line from the Wall Street Journal kind of gets at what worries me. The level of claims indicates many workers are being laid off, perhaps for a second time. I think that what we're seeing and what's hard to refute is that there's a new layer of insecurity and a settling in of the idea that this is not going to be a quick recovery in terms of actual getting back to normal. The virus is still with us. It's still growing around the country. And so there's a new normal that has to be adjusted to. And unfortunately, in many contexts, in many small businesses, in many large businesses, that's going to mean more economic pain. Next up on the brief, U.S. banks have been cleared to offer crypto custody. The U.S. Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which is absolutely a mouthful, is set to allow all nationally chartered banks to provide custody services for crypto. Previously, crypto custody had to come from specialist firms with specific license, often state-by-state license, and this really opens the door to a huge new set of actors to participate in a major way, in an institutional way, in this industry. That's the first part of why I think it's important. It expands access to services for the industry in an industry that has had a really hard time getting top quality banking services and creates a financial incentive for these types of financial institutions and banks to get more involved. Second, I think it also potentially shows the impact of individuals. The acting comptroller right now is Brian Brooks, who is a former Coinbase executive. He's been in power for a couple months and is making a number of pro-crypto pushes, including also a national payments charter, which would basically allow crypto startups to get past this state-for-state approach in terms of acquiring money transmission licenses and instead have a national approach to that issue. All of this together means it could be an interesting moment over the next few months for institutionalization of crypto and new actors coming into the space. Speaking of crypto themes, our third topic on the brief is a Senate hearing on the digital dollar. On Wednesday, the U.S. Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Subcommittee on Economic Policy conducted a hearing on, quote, winning the economic competition between the U.S. and China. Now, most of this was not about crypto, right? Four of the five speakers had no ties to crypto, and the main issues discussed were things like supply chain dependence, and technology like 5G, which makes sense. If you've listened to my episode on a primer on the key fault lines, these are the top of mind issues for US regulators as it comes to China. However, there is also this question of the Chinese digital currency and what it means for the role of the US currency as the world's reserve. In that context, Christopher Giancarlo, the former CFTC chair and now head of the Digital Dollar Project, was one of the representatives. Why is this relevant? Well, there's obviously just the fact that this digital dollar question is being elevated as one of the major economic competition issues with one of the most important geopolitical relationships in the world. But there's something else that's interesting that I really wanted to point out, which has to do with Tom Cotton, who's a ranking member on this committee and who is, importantly, a pretty big new cold warrior, you could say. In part of his comments to Giancarlo before asking the next steps in rolling out a digital dollar, he said, For us, maintaining the dollar supremacy is not only an economic matter, it is a critical strategic matter as well. It is what allows us to have such effective sanction regimes around the world as well as other benefits. And again, I point out that this isn't just any senator, this is Tom Cotton who is a leading voice right now on the Republican side 
specifically as it relates to this push to see the US and China in something of a new Cold War. If he becomes and people like him become major advocates of a US digital dollar, I think you're going to see a lot more political momentum behind that than we've seen so far. But with that, let's turn our attention to our main conversation with Sahil Bloom. Sahil has a really interesting background that I'm sure we're going to get into on this show, but as I mentioned, I started to notice him when he had these really excellent threads start to pop up on Twitter. I featured one of them where he tells the story of Mr. Federico in Renaissance Italy in one of my Long Read Sundays, and I've been paying closer and closer attention. He's been kind of exploding on Twitter, he's been growing a huge number of followers, he's collaborating now with Scott Melker, who's also been on this show, The Wolf of All Streets, on a new financial media play, and I'm really excited to see what they build. Ultimately, the thing that made me want to have Sahil on the show is this sense of trying to make important economic concepts more accessible to everyone based on the belief that everyone has a stake in economic outcomes and so should have a voice that is understood in this space. As with all long interviews, this is edited only very lightly, so let's dive in and I hope you enjoy it. All right. I am back with Sahil. Sahil, thanks so much for joining today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. So by way of kicking this off, uh, I think a lot of people maybe have just started to hear your name if they're hanging out on crypto Twitter or FinTwit, but like, give us the background. Uh, what do you do? Who are you? You know, and, and kind of wh- where are you spending your time? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely <laughs> pretty new to the whole, uh, the whole FinTwit game. I, uh, you know, grew, grew up on the East Coast, moved out to California back in 2009, was fortunate enough to uh, come play baseball at Stanford. So p- played on the baseball team for four years, stayed on and did a master's at Stanford and then jumped into the financial world uh, back in 2014, joined a uh, joined an investment fund in the Palo Alto area, have been there now six years, focused on investments in the consumer space. Um, but more broadly, you know, have a very, very deep interest in in finance and money and economics and and in the history of all those things. So I've really enjoyed starting to engage in the financial Twitter world and and spreading some of the financial education things that I'm really passionate about through that medium. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think I, I want to come come back to this because I think something that you and I share is a sense that financial media has a tendency to be exclusionary and there's a disruption that's happening right now that's much more invitational for people. Um so let's definitely let's definitely come back to that, but uh first I, I want to talk uh let's just get right into contextual news. So it's Thursday, uh which means it's jobless claims day and one of the things that you and I had wanted to talk about was um, real economic impact of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, and we just found out that there were 109,000 uh, seasonally adjusted job claims higher than than last week, um, about 100,000 more than economists thought were going to happen. So it's the first time in about four months that jobless claims or initial jobless claims rather have gone up. What do you make of what's going on and what these numbers mean? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and look, it, just at the outset, I mean, just to say it, the gross numbers on a weekly basis here are shocking. Sure, they were going down you know, week on week for a long period of time, but to have over a million new jobless claims every week over, you know, every single week over the last, I don't know how long it's been, 8, 12, 16 weeks now, it's really just unbelievable. And it shows how we're anchored on such horrific numbers that 
the million number is no longer shocking to us. I mean, imagine that it's, it's just, it's insane. Uh, but to see, you know, to see it tick back up this week, I think is a pretty troubling sign. And it starts to speak to the fact that this recovery is, is slowing and, and sputtering and potentially reversing as we've seen some of these, these health issues pop back up with, with case numbers in these States. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the it's been interesting for the last two weeks or so because you had the scenario where the May into June data was getting people uh, optimistic again, right? Retail traffic was up something like or retail sales were up like seven and a half percent. And there were a bunch of indicators like that. The problem was that those numbers are obviously lagging and they were coming out at the same time as we saw new case numbers going up in 39 or 40 states. And I think this gets at the central uh, I think frustration for most people who are kind of thoughtful observers of this, which is that we've continued to have this conversation of uh, health outcomes and economic outcomes as two divorced realities in some ways. And, and problematically now, it feels like we're starting to see just the, the natural catch up of, you know, hold aside any additional government shutdowns or anything like that, just people make, making kind of rational decisions for themselves or their businesses about where they're going to spend and how they're going to spend and and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you here 100%. It's it, it to me it's all about anchoring. It, we we were anchored around bad numbers. Anything felt better than where we started in March, April. So you started to see things that looked like a recovery based on that anchoring point and people got optimistic and you know, even separating the market and we, we could talk for hours about all the craziness going on there. People started to get more optimistic about the real economy. People felt like spending was coming back. Retail sales numbers looked okay, to your point. Uh, but the reality is the real economy is still suffering. And there are a lot of people without jobs who have had that gap plugged by, by government subsidies and by the government. And at some point, the music stops on that. And I worry that people won't have a chair to sit in, so to speak. Well, and you have right now the you know the government is kicking back into full swing because the six hundred dollar extended benefit is coming to a close for most states this week. This will be the last week that people can actually draw upon that, and that has contributed, I think, a huge part to uh, to the sort of easing of the pain of this thing. And so it seems likely that unless there's something that fills in that gap, the real economic reality is going to hit really fast. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think it allowed people to completely avoid and and kind of just neglect the idea that there was real economic suffering happening, both in their own households and more broadly across the entire economy. Uh, and the government did you know, what it needed to do in a lot of ways. There were people that were suffering because of a government-mandated shutdown, and so they tried to provide support to those people. Unfortunately, as is the case with the government from time to time, they didn't think through some of the second and third order effects of it. They didn't think through the fact that people might be making more money on unemployment than in their regular job. And so you have cases where people aren't going back to work because it makes more sense to remain unemployed and continue to ride the government, uh, the government free money train, so to speak. So it, it, they... They flubbed it in some ways, but I, I was encouraged by the fact, to be honest, that they did support the real economy in some ways, taking the market economy and the Fed actions aside. Yeah, I, I mean, the the question though is, you know, the I think the we've two two things happening simultaneously that I think are for for observers trying to make sense of the world. You have to kind of keep in mind both contexts. The first is 
what happens next in the immediate short term. And unfortunately, we have another short term, right? We had a short term a few months ago that was made not a short term because uh, you know it, we kind of continued to dilly dally from a political perspective as it related right. to common sense measures to address the health. But then you have this larger structural shift too. So numbers just came out from Yelp uh, that of the 132,580 closures around the country of small businesses that had been listed on Yelp, 55% were now considered permanent. So you have this tidal wave of small businesses that have gone out of business. Right. Uh, you have, uh, you have again, this sort of creeping, creeping corona, but then, and this is something that you and I were starting to talk about on Twitter the other day, you also have these larger kind of uh, structural shifts that are likely coming to a number of industries. So let's talk, I guess, about some of these second order effects and more long-term effects and where we're likely to see long-term or at least medium-term behavior shifts that have uh, a particular impact for either individual industries or cutting across industries. Absolutely. I think you said it really well. There's there's second, third, and third effects to all of this. Uh, the, the coronavirus trigger ha- has really set off a chain of events that I think really function as a accelerating event of sorts for for many of these changes. I mean, we've we've known about the trend towards virtual work, remote work for quite some time, but the the forcing function that was COVID has now pushed that forward in my mind 10 plus years. Uh, you, you and I were talking about the travel industry uh, and, and you play out for airlines how this all works. You had mentioned on Twitter, I believe, that a big chunk of these airlines revenue comes from business travelers. It's it's the travelers who their office is paying for full fare business class or upper class tickets. That's where they make the majority of their revenue, the majority of their profits. And if you have those people start to think, well, well, shoot, I can I can just do these meetings virtually. I don't have to be away from my family. I can reduce the cost to my employer. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to think that the airline business model is fundamentally changed now. Their entire revenue model is disrupted by this. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I was reading before this, uh, after our conversation, airline uh, business travelers make up only about like 12% or something like that of total airline passengers in the US, but 75% of the profits, which is exactly what you were just saying, right? That they're the most lucrative segment. Uh, and I think to your point, you have this confluence of factors, right? You have on the one hand, uh, just people getting more comfortable. A lot of the intransigence to um, work from home, right, or remote work was, well, we can't possibly make it work. And people have been forced to make it work, so that argument goes out of the way a little bit. And even the people who do want to or have been reaffirmed in their sense of wanting to kind of build their companies in a uh, mostly in-person way, and now are more precise, I think, in, in what they really need to be in person for and not. Um, so you have that kind of, that 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 excuse is gone. And I think with it is going to go some of the presumption that every meeting even between companies has to be in person as well. And so you have the reduction of travel there. Plus, you have, I think, the larger structural issue, which is that uh, companies are likely to be at least uh, thinking about ways to be more resilient going forward, right? And in the context of cost cutting. And if all of a sudden there's these huge domains, you know, particularly office retail or, uh, or, or, you know, lots of travel that can be cut in a way that seems plausible, it feels like it's going to be one of the first things to go. I think that's all absolutely right. There's, 
there's so many you could play out the threads along this in in so many ways from from the direct travel industry to all of the industries tied to business travel thinking about cities that have been built in the US and in other countries around conferences large gathering large conferences that have restaurants they have hotels they have tourist attractions everything that are that is tied to the travel industry goes well beyond the airlines and it has sweeping effects and, and then you play it out to businesses as you said and trying to save money on on office space trying to save money on events that they had to host um, conference rooms all of the all of the aspects that add to the operating costs of these businesses it's just a total rethink across the board on what your cost structure looks like. And it's a huge opportunity for a lot of them to drive and squeeze costs out of businesses, particularly when you're uncertain about what the demand looks like in the coming years. Yeah. So you have a concept that you're talking about called forced efficiency realization. Could you uh, speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, when I talk about forced efficiency realization, I, I really try to simplify it and think about a, a runner, a uh, distance runner training at altitude. It's, a, it's an example that, that a lot of people are familiar with. You, you go and run in the mountains and train with less oxygen in order to strengthen your lungs and become a, a better, more efficient runner. Now, pl- play that out with a company. Uh, what, what you've had during COVID is a, a period where you need to function and operate more efficiently from a cost standpoint. Demand is so uncertain. A lot of these companies had to make furloughs or cuts in order to make sure they could survive from a cash standpoint. So that was the training at altitude for them. They were forced to go do that. But in the environment post-COVID, I think what a lot of companies are going to find is that they are now a more efficient runner. Uh, per se, they, they are able to operate in a more efficient manner with less cost in their business. And whether that's less headcount, whether that's less office space, uh, it, it's all of the above. They have a more efficient business now that they've been forced to do it. And in an environment where demand starts to come back, they will not have to bring back all of those jobs. They will not have to bring back all of those costs to layer onto their business. And what I worry about is that that means there is a residual high level of unemployment uh, in our economy and a lower level of overall spending as a result because of the lack of discretionary income that has long-lasting structural effects for the broader economy domestically and internationally. Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors. Trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. What's going on, guys? I'm excited to share that one of this month's breakdown sponsors is Crypto.com. Crypto.com offers one of the most cost-efficient ways to purchase crypto out there, as they've just waived the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. What's more, with Crypto.com's MCO Visa card, you can get up to 10% back on things like food and grocery shopping. When you buy gift cards with the Crypto.com app, you can get up to 20% back. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. 
There's a lot to unpack there, but do you think that the that we're going to see more of these impacts come move basically move up the professional food chain from the sort of front lines uh, and you know front facing workers to white collar and professional workers? One hundred percent, yeah, without a doubt, and I think you're starting to see that already. If you follow the news. We're seeing companies, large companies, announcing that they're looking at massive, massive job cuts in the coming year. Uh, and, and it makes you question, right? We're, we're past the COVID shock. Everyone says we're on the V-shaped recovery. Things are good. You have politicians on TV. You have the Federal Reserve uh, officials on TV saying we're recovering. Then why are these big companies announcing new job cuts? Uh, and it all goes to that point that this is starting to migrate upstream. This is starting to migrate to uh, white collar professionals beyond the service line, you know, frontline workers that you were mentioning. Um, and, and that has a long term lasting impact for the overall economy if it does come to fruition. Yeah, one of the scariest versions of this that I saw was uh, LinkedIn announced 6% of its workforce was being cut and the jobs of something like 960 jobs. And they were all around professional and recruitment services. And the reason they were being cut is reduced demand for professional and recruitment services, which mm -hmm. is so many layers upon layers of indicators, right? Hail of the whip. So, so let's talk about. I think one of the things that's really interesting is, uh, is is looking at winners and losers in this environment, and actually starting to try to piece out how uh, power shifts happen. Because, so as we were talking about before, you now have uh, you've had a tidal wave of small business closures, um, and uh, and obviously we've seen in markets certain categories, particularly in tech, have emerged as huge winners. Right, just naturally, Amazon is capturing more of the behavior shifts. They're Incredibly well poised for this. There are obviously, uh, you know, businesses that relate to enabling remote work and things like that that have been winners. But I think I'm interested in your take, not just from a kind of category by category analysis, but in a larger sense of um, how you think capital might rearrange itself in terms of kind of power dynamics. What the implications are for entrepreneurs, for private equity, for public corporations. I guess you know, how do you see power shifting on the other side of this, which is admittedly a huge question. Yeah, a big question, although a great one and a very important one to begin to to chip away at and and I don't I don't I don't want to suggest that I have all the answers to this. My big picture perspective is that this is an unfortunate environment where the big get bigger. Um, the winners are the people that you know about right now. <clears throat> Excuse me, in in my mind you have these big tech companies who have steadily increased in size, steadily chipped away, they're going to continue to win, uh, that they have business models that work in this environment, They that the the notion of tech eating the world will, will continue. And I don't necessarily think that that in and of itself is a bad thing. I think in many cases, technology makes our lives better. And if, if these technology companies are inherently deflationary, they, they have business models that allow us to get more for less money. I mean, you think about your iPhone, and how much power is contained in your iPhone now and the cost you're able to get it for now relative to what that same computing power would have cost 10, 20, 30 years ago. It's it's incredibly uh, deflationary what, what technology is able to do. So I, I don't in and of itself find that to be a bad thing. I find it very troubling when small business and small entrepreneurs uh, are going to face an environment where they get bullied out of markets or are not able to succeed at the ground level. Uh, and I worry about what that means for 
general society. I worry about that, what that means for the culture of America, uh, a, a culture of entrepreneurs, of scrappy startups. Um, and you don't want that to die. That is a very important part of our ethos and of our, of our overall environment that we've created as a country. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think one of the reasons that technology is complicated right now is that uh, for many of the reasons that you just suggested, there is a lot of there, there's a lot of ways in which the um, kind of scale that these companies can operate on, particularly a company like Amazon, uh, has created massive benefit for us. However, at the same time, we've had a conversation about antitrust in general over the last 20 or 30 years has been absolutely gutted. We don't have that conversation really anymore uh, in the political mainstream. And you have a company like Amazon that is basically slowly replacing every single small brand and small seller on their site with an Amazon brand. And it has to kind of bring up this question. I mean, it's a, it's a super dramatization of the larger kind of net impact around the world where is everything just becoming uh, a, you know, uh, uh, winning based on the kind of tyranny of the algorithm, uh, and if not, what's the answer, right? Because it's it's hard to imagine how a uh, uh, even an extraordinarily well funded startup could encroach upon Amazon in any of these kind of key categories that it's infiltrated at this point. Yeah, I think you make a great point. I would push back in a couple of areas. Um, one, I would say. Amazon, or whether you're looking to other areas of e-commerce like a Shopify or uh, Walmart Marketplace, which is a bigger focus for them, I do think they're going to focus more and more in the coming years, particularly as it becomes a political question on promoting and really championing third-party sellers uh, on their sites. Amazon has started to do a better job of that, of uh, providing services to third-party sellers. And, and I think part of that is a political play in order to avoid disruption from uh, from antitrust movements, etc. But they have done more of that in recent years. Walmart Marketplace will launch and and be slowly become a an alternative to the third-party sellers uh, marketplace on, on Amazon. Shopify to their credit, is one of the most incredible businesses in my mind in promoting entrepreneurship and small businesses. I have so many friends that have started these really unique small businesses selling online. And Shopify has been this incredible tool to allow them to scale and grow um, as a small business in a digital environment. Um, you know, you play it out across the tech world, Apple, uh, with their with the App Store and, and what they've done for developers and enabling independent developers to, to grow and scale their brands. So these tech companies are are enabling small business and entrepreneurship to an, to an extent, and there are some good actors out there. I, I do think it should be a focus of the people and, and of government to some extent to continue to promote that and, and make sure that the tech companies are not uh, growing at the expense of all of these small upstarts um, and bullying them out of markets across the board. Well, it's interesting. So, so I think that the using the comparison of Shopify and Amazon to me is a good reminder of why uh, the linguistic brushes we use uh, we should be careful with, right? Because Shopify and Amazon are kind of designed in structurally different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, Shopify is based on uh, on on promoting entrepreneurship. Where you know, you, you it's so far outside the realm of this podcast, but I would push back for years on Amazon as it relates to third party sellers. I think yeah. that they do as little as humanly possible and have been systematically pushing them off the platform for years, which is fine. I mean, like there is a really meaningful question and discussion to be had around no one is entitled necessarily to digital spaces as their own, right? Amazon created the context for third-party sellers. They're welcome to change that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but this question about what the relationship is between platforms and their users, I think also gets into a larger question around that where it's coming up more than Amazon right now is obviously speech issues as it relates to the major platforms. However, I think that a really good point is uh, what Shopify is doing for, uh, for a lot of different types of businesses. And it's interesting. I sometimes wonder if we are seeing almost right now the first time like okay the, let me b- bear with me for a second mm-hmm. the uh the the boomers had them the boomers watched themselves get disrupted and watch their expectations of what their careers were going to look like change in front of their eyes based on the internet right and uh millennials in a lot of ways digital natives in particular came up with the internet so our expectations for our jobs how we would work how often we would shift jobs might have been like they were a little bit more in line in some ways with uh with the reality the economic reality now that holds aside everything around asset prices and our inability to buy into real estate and all that sort of stuff there's so i'm not saying that it was a good economic environment for millennials but we didn't watch ourselves get disrupted in the same way that boomers who thought their jobs were going to and careers were going to look one way had to adapt to this radical shift. I wonder to what extent now millennials are actually experiencing a disruption to their business model where we now are grappling with uh, a, an, an internet that is kind of ruled by these huge platforms and, and that might have pretty structural changes for how we have to operate and expect our careers to go. It's a fascinating line of thinking. I, I've never thought about it that way. I'd love to continue to play. I haven't until out. literally twenty, 20 seconds yeah. ago. Yeah. I guess yeah, I, what I was thinking well, about when, what, when you get on these kind of things, you start thinking about things in a different yeah. uh, different framework. It's fascinating, it, and, and I think it'll be very interesting to see where things are one, two, and five years from now because you have platforms that are doing the exact opposite. We mentioned Shopify. Uh, Upwork is a is an interesting example that I'm extremely bullish on in this new freelance remote work environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it has the opportunity to really champion the careers of superstar freelancers who are going to become more and more a part of the working economy um, as remote work, as digital work, etc., becomes the norm rather than the exception. Um, and, and so I am excited to see this new crop of businesses that pop up and and champion small operators and sole, sole proprietors uh, r- rather than this aggregation of power that you know that you reference as it relates to Amazon. I, I know we have a slightly different viewpoint as it relates to Amazon, and I hope I, I hope that um, that I'm more right than you are in, in the future, and that they yeah, do me too. Me too. You know, focus on and, agree. and not nudge people out of the market. And frankly, I hope that Shopify continues with a noble um, with a noble pursuit of continuing to champion small businesses and operators, and not. Um, start to throw their weight around the room, so to speak, as they get bigger and have more command over the e-commerce and, and digital ecosystem. 
Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, so Upwork is a is another great example. Uh, although Upwork brings up another question that I want to ask you about. So, uh, I mean, the breakdown, the logo, and everything was from Upwork. I use Upwork pretty pretty frequently. It's one of my favorite services. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I guess just to to play this thought out a little bit more, it's like I guess it's dramatized for me by watching these fifty percent of small businesses be permanent closures yeah. and realiz- realizing and seeing that in contrast with where are people looking to build small businesses now. It's individual content creators. It's in the context of the Shopify's and all these sort of like agencies of one and models. It's just, it's interesting. Like we don't have, you know, obviously big power shifts happen over time, even when it feels like there are moments where it's really highlighted. And it's just interesting to see a moment where one way of doing small business has been completely wiped off the map. And the question is whether the new way of doing small business can can even accommodate. And one of the things that Upwork brings up, which is maybe a, a question that I, I have no idea actually what you think about, because I don't think I've ever seen you write about this. Um, Upwork brings the fact of global competition as an outcome mm-hmm. of remote work more clearly, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, the last five people that I've hired on Upwork, one was in the US, one was in Serbia, one was in, uh, I think, Malaysia, one was in India, right? And uh, and it's completely on Which the basis amazing, of talent. Which is amazing, by the way. And it's, it's unbelievable. It's, un- yeah. it's incredibly cool. Uh, but one of the things that I think worries people, and, and people even read this into Facebook's quick move to embrace remote work, was, is this just going to be a structural force that means that every white-collar professional in America is now competing with every other person of similar skills around the world? What's your take on that? Uh, is that the case? And if that is the case, is that a good thing or a bad thing? What are countervailing factors? So first off, yes, I, th- I think we are increasingly going to be moving towards global competition for for high paying and for highly technical jobs. I, I think that technology has been driving that change for a number of years, and it's just much more visible now because of all of these accelerating movements. Um, I mean, over the last 10 years, if you had a friend that started a new startup and was trying to bootstrap it, where, where was he getting the technical and, and back-end work done? It was Ukraine, it was Bangladesh, it was India. Um, th- those jobs have been, those developer jobs have been international and that competition existed internationally in the freelance market. It's just that now the freelance market is going to be the mainstream market uh, in a lot of ways as we go forward. So, so yes, I, I do think you're going to see an increasingly globalized world as it relates to to that kind of talent uh, as more and more of these jobs go digital and go into the into the digital ecosystem is it a good thing or not is a is a much more tricky question for me um, I, I am you know I'm the son of a of an immigrant my, my mother's from India um, my dad's family is is from the Ukraine um, I very much believe in uh, in the American dream. Uh, you know, my, my family came here um, to to pursue that, and I very much believe in it. And I believe we live in the best country in the world. Um, that that being said, I'm also a big believer that historically and throughout history, talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. Uh, and, and that is something that really has troubled me throughout my throughout my life, and something that I'm determined to. Uh, e- even in the tiniest way, help help fix throughout the course of my life, and and this is an event that 
begins to see opportunity distributed more evenly. Uh, You have people in India that have the same access to a high paying or a technical job as as a person who grows up in a wealthy family and in Menlo Park. Um, And do I think that that's a good thing? Yes, I do. From, from a global society perspective and from a human utility perspective, absolutely. Are there things to think through from a policy perspective um, in order to protect American jobs and, and ensure that people have a standard of living that is up to par? Uh, absolutely. And I think it's a very tricky one. And candidly, I don't have the answers for it. And I don't think anyone does today. Uh, it warrants discussion and it's going to be difficult. Um, to, to figure out and, and come to a solution on. But I am a big proponent of, of more evenly distributed opportunity across the world. Yeah, I mean, listen, this is going to be a, a one of the biggest big picture political issues over the coming decade, you know, and it's going to be, I think, uh, highlighted by the context of a power struggle between the US and China, but it's going to have much bigger implications, you know, so I I think it's an incredibly salient point. I mean, it's something that I think about all the time. And I mean, it gets to very fundamental questions of uh, what it looks like to promote national interest in a borderless world. Um, And, uh, and, and obviously, you know, there, I, I believe probably that there will be attempts to reinstitute borders in ways that are going to be um, really difficult to to make stick <laughs> in a in this yeah. world of uh, you know uh, both openness, but also going back even to the point that you made, forced efficiency realization. Right, uh, all of a sudden you have uh, forces for globalism from kind of a, uh, a a political or a social or a or a moral ethical perspective dovetailing with business interests for yeah um, for these changes so it's going to be fascinating to watch play out i totally agree and and we're only playing out the next five to ten years as it relates to human jobs right uh put play it out over the next 10 to 20 years and you start running into a robot globalized world and you're competing against robots for high paying jobs and that, that that becomes an entirely different discussion that we can have on another day but um but a very difficult one as ai machine learning etc start to take over some of the higher paying and and more technical jobs yeah i, I mean i i sometimes think about what it'll be like to listen to these conversations like 10 years from now. And will they just be <laughs> such a chuckle in terms of like totally missing the mark in terms of actual relevance? Uh, Absolutely. But we, we can't know. Well, so th- I think that's actually a pretty good segue though, into something that y- you were discussing before. And I know it's really important to you. Um, part of why you have been kind of blowing up in the Twitter conversation is you've been doing these great threads that simplify through allegory, analogy, and story uh, key financial concepts. And um, I'd love to hear more about what your take on financial education, financial media, financial information is, and what inspired you to start doing this sort of these threads. Yeah, absolutely. So so first off, education has been something I've always been really passionate about. Uh, I, again, it goes back to the point about opportunity not being evenly distributed. I think the way to fix that is, is as a starting point through education. And as you look at the world of financial education in particular, I think the financial industry has, to your point earlier, intentionally been exclusionary. It's insulated itself through complexity, as I would put it. And and that's through jargon, that's through overcomplicating key terms and concepts. It's through all of these things that are intended to keep others out and, and insulate the jobs of people that are, quote unquote, the insiders. 
And, and that's a really unfortunate reality to me. When you when you look at a country where a young man or woman getting a getting their first credit card cares more about the perks um, than the APR they see on the on the label. That is a scary thing. And a lot of that comes from just a lack of basic financial education and literacy. And, and part of it is our schools don't teach it. You you learn about history, you learn about mitochondria, you learn about geometry, all of which are important, but you don't learn about taxes. You don't learn about what a brokerage account is. You don't learn about uh, how to uh, build a diversified portfolio, uh, how to in- invest in index funds that are that are low cost. And, and to me, that is a real travesty. Um, and it's something that I feel like I can do uh, a small part to, to fix. And, and the way I like doing that is through storytelling. I like simplifying these concepts into really understandable parables um, that, uh, that anyone can relate to because they come from real life situations. And I've been candidly quite amazed by by how it's taken off and and how people have enjoyed engaging with the material. Uh, but it's been really encouraging to me, and it's exciting to see that people find value in it, uh, both in the U.S. and also internationally. What are the concepts you think are really fundamental that you're surprised, or that you're finding a surprising number of people just don't really understand? I think it starts all the way at the basics. I mean, my mom texted me the other day, and I'm working on a thread on this now. Uh, she texted me asking, what is an ETF? Um, apparently, some financial advisor had pitched her on uh, taking her money and investing it into a, quote, diversified pool of ETFs um, in order to give her you know, great risk-reward profile. And she's not from the finance world. And that sounded really complicated. That sounded really attractive. Uh, it sounded like something that would justify paying this person some management fee to to do for her. And, and the reality is, if you understood what an ETF was, and if you understood how to invest in them or what platforms allow you to invest in them without paying a management fee, you'd be much better off. Um, you, you have all these people paying financial advisors, paying uh, these crazy fees, when in reality, they could be investing in Vanguard uh, mutual funds or Vanguard ETFs that are um, at such a low cost and allow you to accrue and build wealth over time. Um, it, it, there are these basic concepts like that. And, and my mom, just to say it, is a She's a Princeton master's grad. She's very, very intelligent, has, has been in the world of, of you know, high, uh, high paying jobs in, in her realm her whole life. And she doesn't have that basic education on something so simple. Um, so it strikes me that there are concepts like that that just need to be disseminated uh, more effectively and more efficiently to, to the masses. So as I look at the world of financial Twitter, if I'm being totally honest, there is a a segment of it that is extremely, extremely intelligent and and very much focused on uh, interacting with each other. Um, a lot of it goes over my head because the people are so smart uh, and so deep in expertise on their one area. I'm not focused on on that group. I'm very much focused on h- how do I communicate with the masses? How do I communicate these concepts? in a way that's understandable for everyone and make them accessible to everyone. Do you think that this sort of explosion of interest from the Robinhood crowd and the Davy Day Trader Global crowd actually creates an opportunity to have uh, have more people included in, even if they're coming in kind of in a crass way to begin with? 
Absolutely. A hundred percent. I think we're at a, a seminal moment um, for financial education globally. I've, I've been talking to people about this recently. I mean, I, I come from a baseball background. Half of my friends from my life are baseball players. A lot of them are still playing. Um, and the number of texts I've gotten from those friends saying, hey, I just opened an account. Like, do you have any tips for day trading or any tips for stocks? And, you know, my first answer is no. <laughs> um, but my second answer is like, what questions do you have? What, what, what has popped up that you don't feel like you understand that I can explain and I'll explain it to them. And then that ends up being the genesis of, of a thread I do or of a, of a story I do. Um, and I think it just it just goes to show that there are a lot of people who want to be educated. They want this information. They want to be financially literate. They want to make more money, um, support their families, etc., um, and feel like they're really building and accruing wealth. Um, and if I can be a small part of helping people do that through something I enjoy in storytelling, that's that's really exciting to me. As you sort of navigate what is uh, inherently a very fast changing economy and uh, and wider world. Are there any mental models you use to kind of uh, make sense of things? That's a great question. I, I'm big on the inversion principle. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that one. I first learned about it from um, from reading some Charlie Munger. Um, but but the idea that to break down a complex problem, figure out what what would have to happen for the exact opposite. Um, to occur. I, I've always liked that one. It just has clicked with me. Um, I've never been a huge mental model person. Um, I'm not going and studying all the Farnham Street uh, mental models and memorizing them and how to use them. Um, but that is definitely one that's resonated with me. The other one that I constantly come back to, and you can probably tell from reading my stories, is uh, is Occam's razor. Um, just the idea that the simplest possible solution um, is often the correct one. And and I try to leverage that and think about that as I write these stories is just providing the simplest explanation of something um, and a simple way to think about it is often the best way for, for the vast majority of people. What is next for you? What are your plans uh, to the extent that you can talk about them for expanding on these threads, these stories, this kind of mission around financial education and literacy? Yeah, there, there's a bunch of things in the works um, that are that are pretty exciting. You know, I've I've been approached by a handful of people about uh, ways to expand this platform, and and frankly, it's all happened over the course of the last week or so. Um, I had an awesome conversation with with Mark Cuban, um, who had who had retweeted some of my material, um, and who is very passionate about financial education. I think he's invested in some businesses in the space. Um, and, and he was providing some suggestions around places to partner with, et cetera, in order to expand this platform and this mission. Um, so there are people that have, uh, you know, a great deal of excitement around, around seeing this mission spread and, and built. And, uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it play out over the next four to five days as, uh, you know, as it continues, it's, it's hard for me to plan too far in the future because of how much has changed so quickly. But um, but it's very exciting, and I hope to just be able to reach more and more people with it as we continue to go here. Well, I've been enjoying it immensely. I'm really excited to see what you do next. Uh, for people who want to follow along, where can they find you? I am at, at Sahil Bloom on Twitter. Um, that would be the best place, and I love engaging with people. So please pass along any suggestions. If, if there are any concepts you don't understand, please shoot them my way. I would uh, would love to meet you all. And look forward to continuing to engage with you, Nate.
Awesome, Sal. Well, thanks so much for hanging out on the show today, and uh, I will catch you on Twitter. Thanks so much for having me. There is a lot from that conversation with Sahil that we could spend hours unpacking. This question of whether tech platforms can actually create the context for a new generation of entrepreneurial small business seems like an incredibly important question. The question of whether there is another side to this remote work trend, which is the competing of white-collar professionals with similarly skilled people from around the world and what the implications of that might be. One thing that I think is super clear, though, is that in any of these contexts, we want people to have more information and more understanding in order to be able to make better decisions. And that's where Sahil's mission around financial education and financial literacy comes in. I think it's an incredibly important mission. Obviously, you probably understand that about me if you are listening to the breakdown, but I think it's something that I'd love to see more people go actively after. So follow Sahil on Twitter. The link will be in the show notes. And thanks as always for listening. Until tomorrow, guys, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.